This is the Birth, Baby, and Life podcast, and we're climbing our way into episode number 22. Welcome to the Birth, Baby, and Life podcast. The tips, tools, and straight talk you want for pregnancy, childbirth, and bringing up baby. And now your host, Kristen Burgess. Hi, this is Kristen from naturalbirthandbabycare.com, and I am bringing you episode number 22 of the Birth, Baby, and Life podcast. My daughter was just telling me that she finds it hard to believe that I'm already on episode 22, and when I think about it, it's kind of hard to believe too. What's even harder to believe is we're just a couple months out from being a year into me doing this podcast, and that's pretty crazy. The cool thing about it, though, is that I know that I'm really reaching people, not only because you take a few minutes to leave me a comment or a rating on iTunes or in Stitcher or in one of the other directories, but because... You actually contact me and let me know, hey, Kristen, I found you through your podcast, or I love your podcast, or keep doing the podcast, or I'd love to hear this or that on the podcast. Uh, I've gotten a lot of suggestions. This week is the Q&A episode, uh, so I'm going to answer some questions, but two topics that I've gotten a lot of questions about lately are on managing life with little ones when you have a newborn, and also I've gotten questions on does prenatal bonding and or spiritual preparation, that kind of thing help during pregnancy. So those are two topics that I hope to cover in upcoming podcast episodes. Today, though, I'm going to cover some questions that I've gotten, and all three of them, I'm not going to list a specific name with them because it seems like I'm getting them a lot. So many of you have these same questions or similar questions, I would never say that everybody is exactly the same, but I'm seeing a lot of patterns, the same thing over and over. And some of those things I'm still researching because frankly, I don't feel qualified to give an answer until I do more research. Some of them though, I I feel like I can at least give you a good answer or a beginning of an answer for you to do further research on your own. Before I get into that, I wanted to comment on something. I don't know if you know how much you know about me besides the fact that I run naturalbirthandbabycare.com and also naturalbirthandbabycare sister site gettingpregnant.com. That's getting-pregnant.com. But aside from that, I'm obviously also a mom, but my husband and I bought acreage over a year ago now, and we've been working slowly to turn our acreage into a little farm and homestead. This year we've gotten a big laying flock, and we're getting to know the chickens and all the excitement that goes with them. They're pretty cool. I've never really been very interested in birds, but I'll admit that I really like my chickens, and you can hear my Corwin in the background there. And we, we have a barn cat. We're about to get a dog, which is something I'm very excited about because I've wanted a dog for a really long time. And so this kind of fulfills a, a childhood dream of mine that I've had since upper elementary school to have a, a big dog. We're getting a great Pyrenees puppy. But other than that, we actually want to make this into a working homestead with a focus on livestock. One of the principal reasons is that our Soil is very poor, and I I could go on for hours about that, and I know that'll bore you. But we are also hoping to get goats and maybe sheep. 
Uh, and def- the goats definitely next year for goat milk and because our land, our soil is poor and our land is really brushy and our goats will help us clean it up. So I've been studying a lot about goats and sheep lately when I'm not studying about childbirth and trying to mother my children. I feel like I'm juggling so many things, but really it's so exciting. I was telling my husband today, I know I'm going to go to the grave still learning things. It's just so exciting to think about how much there is to learn every year in my life and I'm um, 12 years, 13 years out of high school now, and there's still so much to learn, and many years out of college. I just, it's exciting. I love learning. But I keep going off on tangents. So the reason why I'm talking about this is because I've been studying a lot about sheep and goats to get ready to bring home our goats in the spring next year. And what I happened to be listening to the other day was um, a video on goats and breeding goats and how to make sure that that goes well not just the breeding but also the kidding which is when the doe a female goat gives birth to the baby goat which is a kid and I almost wanted to cry listening to this video and watching this slideshow because of the sound wisdom that there is in a video about helping your goat give birth but that we, we totally ignore when it comes to humans. So the first thing was they were discussing how you should make up a chart after you've bred your goats for the year. And you make up the chart, you put the date that, the, that you think the doe was bred to the ram, which is the boy goat, and then you put down her expected kidding date, which is her due date, And then there's a place that you leave blank for her actual kidding date. And the presenter on the video said, plain and clear, start preparing for kidding a couple of weeks before your first doe is due. And she may kid a week before or she may kid a week after. And it was just real casual. It was very matter of fact. There was none of this you know, it's going to be this date, and then if she hasn't had her kid by this date, oh my goodness, you need to panic. Like there is when humans uh, don't give birth. And actually, one of our questions is about induction, so that that's kind of ironic. But uh, goats only have about a five-month pregnancy. But she wasn't saying, if your goat goes one day over five months, then there's a big problem. Another thing that she said is if your goat's been in labor for a while and you're worried, the first thing you should do is wait an hour. That's what she said. The first thing you should do is wait an hour and give her an hour to see if she can go ahead and give birth without help. Then there was a long presentation about normal presentations for baby goats. So goats often have multiples, twins and even triplets. The same is true for sheep. And so all these diagrams show different presentations. And what I mean by that is whether the baby is head first or feet first or whatnot. And it's very normal for goat, goat babies and sheep babies. They kind of come feet first and then their head afterwards. But she also talked about how it was normal for the baby to come feet first. And how this presentation is just a variation of normal in this presentation. And really there's only one presentation that may be problematic. Which is when one leg is forward and the other is back. And that can cause problems for your goats. But essentially she was saying that all of these are variations of normal. Yet with human beings, if a baby is breech instead of vertex, meaning the baby's butt is down instead of the butt is up, it's an automatic cesarean for most moms nowadays. 
It's not considered a variation of normal. I realize that it's really controversial, but I do believe that a lot of breech babies can be born vaginally and that women are, and babies are being shortchanged because doctors and even midwives aren't skilled to to know the difference between when a breech birth is going smoothly, when they may need to transport, or if you've chosen to have a hospital birth with your breech baby, when you need to move into the OR, or when everything is going just fine. It's really, it's actually really kind of sad. Then the part that made me actually want to cry was when she was describing uh, well, before that, she was also describing what should you do if you feel like your goat is having a problem. And it was wash your hands, reach up, and just help pull out the hooves for the goat, the baby kid, so that they're right in front of the goat's nose. And then let your goat alone, and she can probably do the rest of it on her own. And if she's carrying multiples, once she's gotten that first one out, leave her alone, and she can probably do the rest on her own. So that's just a simple adjustment of the baby's position. And then the advice is to leave her alone. And then if there were problems more than that, of course they recommended that you call the vet. But the, the, the point was overall in the birthing process that you should just stay out of it and make sure that she was okay, observe from a distance, but stay out of it. And then the part that made me cry was the part where they talked about when the baby is first born, that that first hour after birth is crucial, that you need to make sure that you stay back and let the mom bond with her baby, and that if at all possible, you need to make sure that the other goats aren't around, that the mama and the baby have privacy to get to know each other, even if the other goats are curious about what has happened, that that first hour is really sacred. And then they went over some procedures that you do with your newborn baby goat, and they stressed over and over and over again that these procedures should wait. They should wait. They should wait. They should wait. Because when they don't wait, your, your goat has trouble bonding. So essentially, all the advice about taking care of your new kids or your new lambs, it, it was pertinent for sheep too, was that you should leave them alone and let them be. That you shouldn't mess with them, that you shouldn't do anything, that you should just honor that time and the time that they need to get to know their baby and bond with their baby. It just made me want to cry. I think it's funny because we often say, well, humans aren't animals and we don't have that critical bonding period where the mom is going to reject her baby if she doesn't get to know her baby. But in reality, we don't really know what happens or what is lost when there's this huge separation of mom and baby. And when you look at the rates of postpartum depression and all of those issues, it begs to wonder, is this because of traumatic births? Is this because of extensive separation? And why is it that all of these time-tested principles that we know when it comes to animal husbandry, we just completely throw those out the window for human beings? I guess because we assume that we're too intelligent to need to give birth according to the way that we were designed by nature to give birth. I just find it so sad Especially with all the study that I've been doing for my own continuing education, I want to make sure that I give accurate information on the website and on the podcast. So I'm always doing continuing education, and I've especially been studying a lot about hormones lately. And hormones really are 
a very powerful impact on our birth and on our bonding with our babies. This goes for mothers and fathers, in fact, but especially for mothers right after birth. And speaking of fathers, mothers' hormonal surge after birth is so powerful that if it's uninterrupted, it also affects the dad. Due to pheromones, due to hormones that cross like oxytocin between people, that affects you too, Dad. So all, all these hormonal interplays are supposed to happen. And why is it that we acknowledge that they're supposed to happen with animal babies, like the goats, but we don't acknowledge that it's supposed to happen with people babies? That just boggles my mind. And it's something that I've been thinking about ever since I watched the video. So I gave you a little tour off into what Kristen thinks about when she's doing homesteading things and what Kristen I'm always interested in birth and babies even if they're animal births and animal babies so so that was interesting okay we'll move on and talk about our questions for the day the first of which ironically or maybe not is on induction I've gotten a lot of questions about induction and those questions are mostly related to I never went into labor with my first baby or my first, second, and third baby, and I had to be induced, and I really don't want to be induced with this baby. I've gotten probably seven different variations on that question, and another variation that I feel is related to that that I've gotten several people ask me about is I got into labor and I, I did really well, but then I had a hard time at the end and my doctor said it was because I had a really tired uterus or my uterus was just worn out because I'd had all these babies or or because I had a long labor or whatever the reason was. I've gotten so many variations of these two questions. It's really surprised me, but it's also brought to my mind how important those questions are. Um, and I can't help but think the irony of getting those questions and then watching this video on sheep and goats where she talks about how normal it is for sheep and goats not to, not to give birth right on their due date. And that's true for humans. It's normal not to give birth right on your due date. A due date is not a scientific calculation. It is a mathematical formula used to estimate the date of your baby's birth. And it's flawed. I mentioned my continuing education for or, or a minute ago, and one of the things that I recently had to do was just answer some basic questions for a homework assignment. And one of the things that I had to answer was uh, what, what do the abbreviations EDD and ECD and EDC and all of those, what do those refer to? And they all refer to due date. And then I had to go into detail on how due date can be figured. And usually women's due dates are figured based on Nagel's rule, which is last menstrual period minus three months plus seven days gives you the expected due date. So that's a mathematical formula. And... It assumes that your cycle is completely normal, first off, that you ovulate on day 14 and that you would have a period on day 28. And most women are not textbook like that. There are some of you who are textbook, and so that due date would be very accurate. But most women are not textbook like that. For instance, I usually ovulate very, very early uh, I, on day 12 or 13. So that's pretty early in my cycle, and I tend to have shorter cycles. Now, when I got pregnant with my last baby, Corwin, we were charting, and uh, and I had had several kind of false start cycles that, that didn't really do much, and I don't think I could have gotten pregnant. 
And my ovulation date was way, way late in my cycle, like day 21. My body was kind of trying to gear up and wasn't doing a really good job of it because I was still breastfeeding on her. And then when I did get pregnant, um, I think it was probably the first viable cycle that I had, but it was still day 18 before I ovulated. So way later than was even my normal, but, but I got pregnant with Corwin. And there are other ways to calculate due date, and my midwife was willing to listen to me, and I told her, look, I calculated due date based on date of conception because we knew the date of conception. And <laughs> actually, Corwin was born on his due date, so I really nailed it with that. But he's my only baby out of six that was born on his due date. But still, the calculating due date based on the date of conception, if known, tends to be more accurate, but still isn't completely accurate. We knew the date of conception with Honor and with Galen as well, and, uh, and Honor was born a couple days before her due date. Galen was born the day after his due date. And then with my first ones, there was even wider variation with my first two. Cassidy, my first, was 10 days late. Asher, my second, was 7 days early. Brennan was also the day after his due date, my third. So I say that I've gotten more accurate as I've had more babies. But that's just a joke. The reality is that due date is very variable. And uh, so there, it, it's, it's kind of a myth that the due date is there. And depending on your cycles, your due date could be way off. They could say that your baby is due, um, you know, they could say your baby is due on September 15th, when in reality, you won't be 40 weeks until September 25th, or maybe even later. Due date can be way off. Ultrasound can be relatively effective for dating pregnancy early 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 in the pregnancy but once you get anywhere farther along like mid-pregnancy when they have that normal anatomy scan around 18 to 20 weeks that is not accurate for dating and the farther along you get the less accurate they are just because of variability if you want to know more about that particular ultrasound the anatomy scan and the pros and cons of it you can listen to one of my current favorite podcasts which is uh indie births taking back birth podcast it's really great it's in itunes too so you can look at that give them a little hat tip there they have a great episode on ultrasound that i would recommend you listen to now if you're worried about going into labor or if you haven't, especially with the situation that most of these moms who are emailing me have, they're telling me, I never went into labor on my own. And I think a big part of that is because with their first baby, maybe they were induced because they were tired of being pregnant or because they hit the 40-week mark and the doctor said, that's it you know, it's time to induce you. And when I say tired of being pregnant, mamas, I don't want to cause you any guilt because I've been very, very pregnant six times now. And I know how tough it is at the end of pregnancy and how tempting it can be when the doctor says, okay, would you like to come in for an induction tomorrow morning and meet your baby? That sounds like a great idea. So I'm not trying to... (laughs) Corwin's excited. I'm not trying to uh, cause guilt, but... The fact of the matter is, is when you do that, you're circumventing normal labor starting. And then some of you have had a situation where you get really far and labor hasn't started. Now, Cassidy, my first, was 10 days late. And that's really very normal for a first-time baby. 
they tend to come late. And a lot of doctors will not quote unquote let a mother go that far in her pregnancy. And so there's a problem there. And then labor induction, it just undermines a mom's confidence. I was reading an article recently and I, I can't remember where it was to give you a reference. Maybe I'll look it up and put it in the show notes. But the she was talking about the article author was speaking about how labor induction begins labor by undermining a mother's confidence. And I really think that's true because you're going into labor with the assumption that my body isn't working properly because it didn't start labor and something's going wrong with my baby. Well, the reality is, is we don't know what causes labor to begin. We don't know. At the time of this recording, it's 2013. We're more than halfway through the year, and science still doesn't understand exactly what makes labor start. They understand enough about the hormone oxytocin uh, to say we can give the mom this drug and an IV and usually labor will result, but they don't understand all of the physiological things that happen with the mom, with the baby, with hormones, with even physical pressure sensations to cause labor to occur. So how can we be so, I guess, pompous as to think that we know better than nature and than the mother's body? And how can we be so conceited as to go ahead and undermine a mother's confidence in her body and her baby when they may have been perfectly correct when there was that feeling that this isn't ready to happen yet? And as is often the case, saying something like, this baby is so big and we need to induce labor right now, and then you end up with a seven-pound baby. In my due date club with Corwin, there was a first-time mom who, and everybody on the forum, and this was a pretty mainstream forum too, pretty standard medical care, but everybody in the due date club was trying to tell her, you know, the doctor can be way off in his estimation of weight because he was saying that the baby was 10 plus pounds and she went in for an induction. Her body and her baby were clearly not ready and the induction essentially didn't do anything. She ended up with a cesarean section and had a baby who was just under eight pounds. That's way off, and that was a totally unnecessary surgery for that mother and for that baby. And that's what often happens when an induction is done because labor hasn't started. Especially if you are a first-time mom, I would recommend that you wait. And you can use expectant monitoring, which means that you go in, you're monitored frequently. They check baby out, make sure that everything is good do a biophysical profile, uh, non-stress testing, those sorts of things. To monitor baby, that's called expectant monitoring, and that you stay active and eat well. But give it a week, two weeks even, after your quote-unquote due date. And just relax, enjoy being pregnant. I know that it's hard, but you can do it. And see if things happen on their own. That will help stop many cascades of interventions and things that can impact pregnancies in the future. If you're one of these moms in the situation where you haven't had a labor start, here are some things that I can suggest, and these really go for all moms. Um, First of all, I would suggest you do things that are very natural. I, I don't favor induction by chemical means. I personally don't favor other old wives' tale induction methods like castor oil. I don't favor herbal induction methods because those things all can 
first, psychologically undermine mom, and second, they can, um, they can really, they could cause effects that weren't, there was no intention of affecting. I feel like I didn't say that well. They can cause things to happen, side effects. For instance, herbal induction methods like black and blue cohosh have been associated with baby heart rate pattern uh, disturbances. And that's just something that I don't think is really worth the risk. When I do talk about herbs, there are a couple things that I think are okay. Red raspberry leaf tea throughout pregnancy. This is an herbal tonic, and it's also an herbal infusion. You know an infusion better as a tea. The technical term for it is an infusion. That means you take the dried herbs and you steep them in hot water so that the medicinal properties of the herb seep out into the water. When you drink ginger tea or even when you drink something like chai or regular old black tea, you're drinking an infusion. And red raspberry leaf tea taken as a tonic throughout pregnancy. Some moms prefer the second half of pregnancy starting at 20 weeks. But as you take that throughout pregnancy, that helps gently tone the uterus. That is not, that's not going to cause a problem. And that's always something that I feel is okay to use. It's um, centuries, time-tested for centuries as safe for women. There are also some tinctures that are labor preparation tinctures. I've never personally used one of these, and I honestly didn't go look up any brand names. But usually it's recommended that you take them for about five weeks leading up to your baby's birth. I would recommend that you discuss it with your doctor or your midwife. Um, But they're generally regarded as safe, too, and can help prepare the uterus. Another thing that may help is, uh, is evening primrose oil, just... Uh, applied to the cervix that could be considered a prostaglandin I think that's getting a little bit more interventive but some moms feel really comfortable with that because it's just it's a food grade oil and it's just being mostly absorbed by the mucous membranes of the vagina or birth canal are very they're very porous and sensitive just like any mucous membranes and so that may help prepare the cervix but otherwise I would not recommend that you try any herbal remedies no castor oil nothing like that Uh, I would stay away from it even if your midwife recommends it but that's up to you to consult with her and you can discuss that other things that I would recommend that you do if you have a history of induction or a history of not going into labor on your own are you can hear Corwin back there First, I would recommend my old standby of excellent nutrition. And I said that I've gotten a lot of questions about a tired uterus lately. And I think that one of the big things you need to do if that's your problem is look at your nutrition. I won't go into tons of detail on nutrition here. But I will say take a look at your diet. Make sure that you're getting enough protein in pregnancy. That means 80 grams. Make sure that you're salting to taste so that your blood volume, which should be well doubled by the time you go into labor, is really and truly well doubled. Your uterus needs a lot of blood to make everything happen that's supposed to happen. Uh, I would pay attention to if you eat red meat, I would especially recommend that you eat red meat because that just really builds up your uterus. It nourishes your uh, it nourishes your tissues, gives you iron, and a lot of the things that you just need for muscular strength. Something like heart meat is supposed to be especially good to help the muscle work because it's high in coenzyme Q10. 
And heart meat is, it's, it, we think of it as an organ meat. It's actually a muscle meat. And it tastes very much like any other kind of roast, talking about beef or bison heart here. It just has kind of a finer texture to it, but it tastes pretty much like roast because it's a muscle meat, just like roast meats are. That could be useful. Uh, also, make sure you want to make sure you're eating a wide variety of vegetables so you're getting plenty of vitamins and minerals. But really make sure you're getting that nutrient-dense food and make sure that you're getting plenty of good fats. Butter, coconut oil, olive oil, animal fats, whole fat dairy, uh, traditional fats that your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother would have eaten. Those are the fats that really nourish your body during pregnancy. All of these foods are important to give your body the energy to go into labor and the energy to sustain a healthy labor pattern. So check what you're eating first, and especially, again, if you're one of those mamas who had a uterus that tired out or you just suffered from maternal exhaustion is the medical term for it during your last birthing, then this is something you want to pay close attention to. Other things that you can do are are make sure that you're getting out and getting some movement in. Make sure that you're walking. A lot of moms notice that they kind of feel compelled to walk and to be more active near the end of pregnancy. So you want to make sure that you're up and that you're moving, that you take a walk every day. You can work up to it if you need to, but even a few miles a day will be good for you and your baby. It's wonderful because it gets you moving. It helps move your baby down into your pelvis and pushes your baby's head down further against your cervix. I said earlier that that physical feeling may play a role in what starts labor, and that's what I was talking about, the actual feeling of your baby's head pushing your pushing down on your cervix could make nerves fire could cause hormonal responses we know that that's the case during labor there really is a feedback loop between the baby's head pressing down against the cervix and then pressing against the wall of the birth canal and hormonal triggers in the mom's brain so it's very reasonable and um, very probable to expect that that also happens before labor and birth. So keep that in mind. Another reason that the exercise, getting out and walking, getting moving helps is because it keeps you feeling fit and it increases your stamina and endurance. Labor, uh, more than anything, I've really come to believe that labor is, it's an athletic event and we need to prepare for it. And the way that you prepare for labor is just the way that you prepare kind of for having healthy endurance all throughout your life. That means taking regular walks, getting out regularly, walking the stairs instead of taking the elevators and that sort of thing. And this is not in an attempt to lose a few calories, ladies, like uh, some diet gurus might tell you. But it's more just because humans were designed to, to be moving, you know, to wander around gathering our food or wandering after our animal herds or chasing our children around. Uh, human life was, it was designed to be mobile. So being mobile gets your baby lined up in your pelvis, builds your stamina. I think it really helps maternal well-being. And it, it can help your body know that, hey, I'm healthy, I'm active, my blood is flowing where it's supposed to, my hormones are flowing, my lymph fluid is flowing, my nerves are firing, everything's going on, and this body is getting ready for labor. All these messages that are internal that we don't think of, that we take for granted, 
uh, are firing the way that they're supposed to and are getting delivered the way that they're supposed to. I really think that, that getting regular movement in plays a big role in making sure that all of that happens. Going up and down the stairs, the reason that I introduced this podcast with climbing is because climbing up and down the stairs, I think even more than walking unless you're hiking in a mountainous region, but climbing up and down stairs really pushes your baby down into your pelvis. And when right before I had Galen, uh, the day before I went into labor with Galen, my husband had to go into the office to do something with an electrician. I think he had, to, he had to open up the room for an electrician. He works in IT at his office, and so he had to open up the room where the computer equipment was housed for an electrician. And at that time, we lived within walking distance of his office, and so we all walked over because it was on the weekend. And while he and the kids were watching the electrician or the air conditioner guy or whoever he was do his thing, I walked up and down the stairs of the office building, up and down, up and down, up and down, I was pretty winded when I got done, but the next morning labor started, and I cannot tell you for sure that that is what caused my labor to start. Maybe God meant that my labor, or, you know, he knew my labor was going to start the next day anyways, but I, I like to think that that walking up and down the stairs helps, and it is shown that even if you have a labor that slows down or if you stall in labor, failure to progress, that sort of thing, going up and down stairs It really jiggles the baby's head around and moves the baby's head down further and firmly up against the cervix, and it can help get get things going. And finally, um, making love can help get things going because semen has prostaglandins in it, which are what help ripen the cervix. And in fact, if you go in, they'll often put a prostaglandin, a synthetic one, of course, onto your cervix if you go in for an induction. Again, I'm not going to say that this works, and I would honestly say that in my experience it doesn't really work. I don't know how much good it does, but it's something, that's an old wives' tale that I think is perfectly fine to uh, indulge in, because, you know, you're not going to get to for a while after you have your baby. You're certainly, that's going to be the last thing on your mind. And so it's something that you can try. I could go into a lot of other natural induction methods, like, and an old wives old wives tales like eating spicy food, washing the floor on your hands and knees and that sort of thing. And if you enjoy spicy food, eat plenty. And if you want to get the floor really clean before you go into labor, wash the floor on your hands and knees, vacuum all your carpets. Just don't wear yourself out. And even with the walking and stair climbing, don't wear yourself out. Um, if you go swimming, don't wear yourself out. But all of these are things that can help. And I think, I really think that the biggest things are nutrition and exercise. And then aside from that, I'm already running over my podcast time here, so I'm trying to make this brief. But aside from that, I really think psychological is very big. So believe in your body. Know that you've done what you need to do to prepare for childbirth. Know that you're well-nourished. Know that you've been active throughout your pregnancy with walks every day. I don't mean you need to get to the gym and do aerobics routines every day, ladies. I'm, I'm talking simple walking. But if you know that you are doing that every day, you, you can trust yourself and your baby's timing. And I also think there's something to talking to your baby and saying, I'm ready for you, baby. I feel ready. Or if you realize that there's really something that you fear about starting labor or if there's something you feel you don't have ready, there are babies who come every day when the mom is not ready at all. But 
But I do think that this can be a big mental block to giving birth and laboring is when you realize that, hey, uh, I'm scared of this or I don't have this ready or I have this problem going on and, uh, and I need to take care of it. And what, what will really benefit you the most is to take care of that fear. My, my book, Fearless Birth, helps with a lot of that anxiety clearing. Um, and it goes through it in a workbook-like fashion, which I found beneficial for myself personally. But a lot of moms just find that talking it out with another mom or with their midwife or with their doctor can really make a difference. Or even just acknowledging that it's a problem. So speaking to your girlfriend, talking to your mom, your midwife, your pastor, anybody like that that's a support person, that can really help uh, relieve anxiety and help you go ahead and go into labor. That's a psychological aspect that I really do think is understated and we don't take seriously a lot of the time, but I think that it can be a problem. So it's always something to consider. And especially if you're on your second, third, fourth pregnancy and you haven't gone into labor naturally on your own, it may be something to consider because your confidence is probably undermined. And that is something that you should address and work through before it's time for you to give birth to this new baby. Okay, we are really actually running right up against the clock at 30 minutes here, and I went way over with the last podcast episode. I think I'm going to save the next two questions that I had for our next Q&A podcast. And then next week, or or not next week, two weeks from now, I am planning to bring you one of the podcast topics that I mentioned early in this episode that I've gotten questions about. So I will look forward to talking to you then. I really appreciate when you leave me feedback. So many of you have been leaving me reviews on iTunes and uh, with Stitcher and I just feel it gives me warm fuzzy feelings inside whenever I go and see one of those I really appreciate that and I also really appreciate those of you who take two or three minutes to actually type out a review and I love it if you're directing a question to me uh, when you say hey Kristen I found you on the podcast or I really love the podcast because that helps give me energy and enthusiasm to keep going with the podcast for you so I appreciate that and if you haven't left a rating or a review if you would just take a couple seconds to leave a rating or a couple minutes to leave feedback on iTunes let me know what you liked and what you didn't let me know what you want to hear about I would love that also before I go if you want to subscribe to the podcast or uh if you want to get the email newsletter, or if you would like to get uh, our free Trust Birth MP3 and our free Guide to Planning a Natural Birth, you can grab that. Just go to TrustBirth101.com. That's TrustBirth101.com, and you'll see a a button where you can subscribe on iTunes and where you can grab all these things and and get that freebie. So, um, So you can plan a great birth for your baby, and you can figure out... Not not just here, hey, trust birth and you'll be okay, but the MP3 actually goes into, okay, how do I trust birth? And uh, I think it's important to give moms a practical reason for trusting birth, and that's why I put the MP3 together for you. Having said that, I will let you go. I will see you in a couple of weeks with more birth and baby info for you, and then in about a month with more reader Q&A. Thanks.
Thanks for listening to the Birth, Baby and Life podcast with Kristen Burgess. For great resources and tons more info, visit www.birthbabylife.com. Visit www.birthbabylife.com.